encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19 for Old Testament Scripture reading. I think many times we look at some of these passages in the Old Testament and we think, what does this have to do with the church today? Some of us might look at the Old Testament and go, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. But as we see, as we're going to see this morning, the New Testament quite often cites not just the Old Testament promises, but many Old Testament commands as well to remind us that the Old Testament is still binding upon believers, although we have to recognize that we must interpret those commands in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we look at what God's commands are for dealing with accusations within the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, that was a particular nation, that of Israel. But now that the new covenant has come, it falls within the bounds of the covenant community that is the church. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, and shall be lie for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Getting closer to the end. One more week after this, I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. Here Paul writes about the preparations Corinth must take as he is about to come visit them for a third time. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. And notice what he says here. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness. He lives by the power of God. We also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. 
For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts to understand what your word says, to apply these truths to our lives, that we might be diligent and found ready on the day of your return. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember in the third grade, I was living, uh, me and my family were living in an apartment complex on the south side of Jacksonville, and nearly every day after school, I would uh, come home from school and then ask to go uh, down the street to play with one of my good friends, Nick Spinelli. Typically, I'd go over to his house, we'd spend the afternoon reading comic books, watching old science fiction movies, be it Star Wars or whatever, but on this particular day, there was a power outage in the neighborhood. My mom told me that for safety reasons, that you cannot go down the street to your friend's house until the power is back on. Naturally, the rule did not make any sense to me. It was the afternoon. The sun went and set for hours. Why can't I go? Mom, I need to go. I need it. My mom very gently responded, no. But mom, I have to go. So my mom, very gently, and yet more firmly, told me, if you ask one more time, you will be grounded. You cannot go until the power comes back on. Thirty minutes go by. It felt like an eternity. I kept to myself, but after about half an hour, I couldn't hold it in any longer. So I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, can I go to my friend Nick's? house. And as soon as I had asked the question, all the lights came back on. And I went, ah, the power's back on. And my mom said, ah, you're grounded. I told you, no. I was very, uh, very upset. I think every parent knows what it is like to raise sinners, those who continue to dis- disobey and rebel against their parents. Discipline always more often than not, begins with that gentle warning. Son, listen here. This is the way it's going to be. And if you refuse to listen, it's a little bit, it's not just son, it's Charles. And then it's the, the first and middle name, right? Charles Bernard. You know, it's, it's the ratcheting up. If you don't listen, judgment is coming. You're going to be grounded. You're going to get spanked. And the more and more the child persists in their hard-heartedness and rebellion, the more stern the rebuke continues to get, and yet if they continue, harsher reproof is needed. Of course, discipline becomes a much more serious matter if uh, the courts have to get involved. Somebody has to call the cops because a child is being uh, malicious or violent. What's needed when the cops get involved, when the civil courts are involved, of course, include that of evidence, witnesses, a judge, and a verdict. What we see here this morning is that though Paul continues to entreat Corinth as a loving father, he's been using very stern language throughout this letter. You notice how stern his language has been. But now he has to turn up uh, uh, the... uh, uh, 
the language even harsher as he now begins to speak and use courtroom language to describe his impending third visit. The time of trial is at hand. Of course, Paul is not speaking of the civil courts. He is speaking of the courts that have been given to the kingdom of Christ, the church. And it tips our hat to that painful reality that the sin that is found in the church, if left unrepented, has to be met with a solemn severity. Paul is talking about the nature of church discipline, particularly as it relates to unrepentant sin. Unrepentant and persistent sin in the life of the congregation. So I'd like us to consider this passage under two particular headings. First, we'll consider the matter of evidence in verses 1 to 4. And then secondly, the matter of examination in verses 5 to 10. So evidence and examination. First, there is that matter of evidence. Paul is written as if he is preparing for trial. If you recall the context of this letter once again, Paul has been defending his ministry against false accusations. As I've tried to labor over the past year to demonstrate, Paul is not defending his ministry out of uh, uh, some uh, bruised or wounded ego. For Paul, the gospel is what is at stake. To reject and repudiate Paul is to reject the message of Paul. And so to vindicate his ministry, he has found it necessary to take this to trial, so to speak. So Paul, even in the opening of these verses in chapter 13, he reminds the church of the scriptural standards that have been set for such matters. And he does so by turning to the Old Testament. By turning to Deuteronomy chapter 19 here, Paul quotes the book of Moses. Deuteronomy 19.15, A single witness shall suffice against a person Uh, shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection to what he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. Again, Paul is taking God's law and he's applying it to the people of God in the New Testament. Under the Old Covenant, it applied to the nation-state of Israel, but now we see that it applies to the church. We find here that the Old Testament is still binding upon the church, although, as I said a few moments ago, things must be understood in light of Christ's advent. There has been a shift. If you read the Old Testament, when somebody within the covenant community uh, sinned and they refused to repent, they the evil was to be purged from their midst. That was the language of the Old Testament signifying what? That they should be stoned to death. That's pretty drastic, and yet it was required under the people of God or for the people of God under the Old Covenant. Now that Christ has come, that same uh, rule still applies. People are still called to repent of their sin. And if they do not repent, then, as Paul says, and as the Scriptures say, Deuteronomy 19, Paul quotes it again in 1 Corinthians 5, Thus shall you purge the evil from your midst, however the mode of discipline has changed. The church isn't called to pick up rocks out in the parking lot and stone a person to death. Rather, is that of church discipline leading to excommunication. Paul doesn't have to elaborate much further because Corinth has already had to deal with this at least once. I'd encourage you to go back 
this week and reread 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Corinth has already uh, had a member of their church not simply committing adultery, but committing incest, a man sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, the implication, probably his stepmother. Paul says, you guys are not only letting it slide, you're endorsing. This is something that's so wicked, so heinous, not even the, the outside world approves of such behavior. And yet you're treating it as if it's no big deal. And Paul gives them the command and the exhortation on the basis where he cites Deuteronomy in that passage as well. That they are to hand that man, in fact he says, I am doing it now, handing that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that he might be saved in the day of salvation. Here, Paul is talking about the manner of church discipline, uh, and this church discipline finds its origins in the Old Testament. The principle still applies. Whispers must be addressed, be it true or false, and Paul now applies this, not to the matter of sexual sin, exclusively, but also to those who have been spreading malicious rumors about him. False rumors. Paul is saying, in effect, these rumors, these false accusations can no longer stand. If anyone wants to bring a charge against me, let him do so. But they cannot be rumors. They must be substantiated on the basis of at least two witnesses. Think about how different the church in America would look if the church abided by this. How often do we uh, you know, sit around the water cooler over a text message or email or, or after some type of Bible study or at somebody's home go, hey, did you hear what such and such is doing or what they did to so and so? No, I didn't hear that. And it's like that game of telephone. And the lies and the whispers spread and they spin out of control. This is not to be the, the way in the kingdom of Christ. This is not to be the way in the church. If somebody has sinned, Jesus talks about this very clearly in Matthew 18. Somebody sinned against you, you go talk to them privately. Try, try to convince them of the error of their ways. If not, you bring a second person. You don't, you don't post about it on Twitter. You don't go into Facebook and write a big post about the things they've done. I remember when I was in high school, they had something called slam books. People would pick a particular person and then they would pass the notebook around and then just fill the notebook full of malicious slander and gossip about a particular individual. Slander is the most cited infraction of the Ten Commandments found in the Psalter. The most prayed prayer of the psalmist in the Psalms is, Lord, deliver me from the slanderer. What Paul is saying is that these things have to stop. Not that you don't address real sins, but that you do address these in the proper way that the law of Moses has set into place on the basis of only two or three witnesses. So this cuts at, at the root. Somebody who's trying to spread a false rumor about somebody else. Because if one person comes to another and says, did you hear such and such? And you say, whoa, stop. I wasn't privy to that. Why don't you go talk to that person? about that if they sinned against you or if they did that, or go bring it to the elders. But I don't need to hear about this. It would save the church from a world of pain if we followed and practiced what Paul said here. 
Paul says, I'm not squelching. If you have a problem with me, he says, I'm not saying don't talk about it. He says, talk about it through the right channels. If I have done some of these things you've claimed, they have to be substantiated and corroborated by eyewitness testimony. They've got to be properly vetted and cross-examined. How easy it is to believe rumors and whispers about others in the church. And yet God, in His mercy, sometimes when we hear the language of church courts, we think, ooh, that sounds mean. But it's actually given as a mercy to the people of God to protect the innocent, those who are being sinned against, because we recognize, even within the four walls of the church, all of us are sinners. Look, if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't have to have a confession of sin as part of our regular liturgy. And yet Jesus calls us to pray every day, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The implication that we have to pray for that every day as well. Why? Because Jesus knows our own hearts. Even as believers, we are sinners. And Christ has given His courts to establish justice in the midst of His kingdom, to protect the innocent from false rumors, and as a means to reckon with real and persistent sin. But Paul is not only concerned about his own reputation. This is a basic principle that's in place for the church from here to the day of the Lord's return. Paul is calling the unrepentant to account as well. He says, look, when I arrive, we will settle this matter for once and for all. I've borne patiently under the weight of lies, but now the reckoning must come. Verse 3, I've already warned you as I warn you again. When I return, I will not spare those who have repented. This is the language of, of that father who has been speaking to his children about the same persistent sin over and over again. And now the tone gets a little bit more firmer, right? Don't make me count to three. Paul says, you want proof that I'm an apostle? You're claiming that I'm too weak? You want evidence that Christ is speaking through me? Be careful what you wish for. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. There's a couple that lied to the church. They lied to God. And they were judged. Struck down dead in a moment's notice to put fear in the hearts of believers that sin is no laughing matter. I think sometimes we treat the New Testament as uh, kind of sloppy agape, that we're now more free to, do, to, to sin more often uh, than those in the Old Testament were, but that's the exact opposite approach that the New Testament takes. You remember the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says, look, if, if those who stood at Sinai and heard the blaring of the horn, saw the smoke and the fire descend, the multitude of angels Uh, If they couldn't get away with the sin because they refused the word of Moses, how much more will we not get away now that we hear him who has spoken from heaven? See, under the new covenant, there's an intensification in the call to holiness. Not a lightening of it. There's a call to guard our heart, our ears, and our lips. Paul, in essence, is telling Corinth, you have taken the Christian life too lightly. You've taken the Christian ministry too casually, and you have treated my authority as a minister of the gospel too flippantly. Paul, in essence, is saying the lies must stop. 
Paul says, your quarrel is not with me, it's with the Son of God who is raised in power. You see that here in verse 4. And it is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the exalted Christ. Paul reminds the church of Corinth that when we're baptized into Christ, we are united to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Both and. Paul talks about this earlier in this letter in chapter 5, that we, and in chapter 4 as well, that we simultaneously uh, manifest both the weakness and uh, our, uh, our, our own weakness and the power of God, the resurrection and power of God. Both of these are manifested in our lives, both the suffering and the glory. Though we undergo suffering in this life, Christ also manifests his exalted power. And for Paul, he says, particularly Christ exercises his power to judge in the midst of the church. Paul says, when I come for this third visit, I will display Christ's exalted power as judge in the midst of the church. You say, you want proof that Christ is speaking through me? Well, you're going to get it. But this is not what you, the kind of power that you're wanting. You're wanting to see the bells and the whistles, the spectacle. You want to see the dog and pony show. Paul says, no, the Christian life is manifested in weakness, but now, if you want to see how Christ manifests his power now, it's seen in the judgment upon sin and in the call to holiness. What on earth is Corinth to do? Paul is saying, you've got to brace yourselves. Judgment is coming. I'm saying this to you as a loving father. I'm not here to try to drop the hammer of Thor on you. I'm saying this as one who is calling you and exhorting you to repent before it is too late. So what is it that, in light of this whole letter, what should Corinth do? We see the, the response here in verse 5. It's very simple. Paul says, examine yourselves. Reminded of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. Paul's not doing anything new. He's not doing anything flashy. Paul is simply doing what every apostle, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and preacher has ever done since the fall of man. He is calling the people of God to repentance. And repentance requires self-examination. And self-examination requires self-reflection. How often do we sit under a sermon and think, man, I really hope uh, Jim Bob on the other side of the, ch- uh, the church is listening to what the pastor's saying. He could really, he could really deal with a dose of what, of what the pastor's saying right now. It's so easy for us to sit underneath a sermon and go, aha, now, that part of the sermon's for him, that part of the sermon's for her, that's for that whole family over there. Oh, but the pastor said, he said, for everybody except for me. Now, we, we think we've got 20-20 vision when it comes to everybody else's sins. But when it comes to our own sin, we're, we're blinder than Helen Keller. We are so oblivious, aren't we? Just like the Pharisees. Repentance requires self-examination, and self-examination requires self-reflection. We take what God's commands are, and you begin to say, Lord, shine the spotlight of your word on my own heart. Where have I fallen short? In what ways have I transgressed? How have I failed to live up to your law, not just in terms of my actions, but in terms of my attitudes, 
my thoughts, the very things that I love. To take God's law unadulterated, burning on all of its splendor and its brightness and its holiness and its purity and shine it on our own hearts to make sure we get the log out of our own eye first before we worry about the speck in anybody else's eye. To ponder the direction of our thoughts, the manner of our attitudes, and the path of our feet, the course of our very lives. Note what Paul says, says do not, he does not say, examine the person in the pew next to you. Do not think, man, my sister really needs to hear this. Elbowing your wife, going, time to listen up. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them, right? Probably the prayer of our heart more often than we care to think. And Paul says, no, it's time to get real. It's time to get real between you and God and not trying to use anybody else as a scapegoat or a deflection from the real problem that exists in your own heart. He says here, examine yourselves. Test yourselves in matters of faith and of life. This is why our shorter catechism, question three, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God what duty God requires of man. Where, where's my faith lacking? Where am I lacking in my duties? How have I failed to love the Lord with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? How have I failed to love my neighbor as myself? I don't think we have a real hard time loving ourselves. But when you're called to love your neighbor as yourselves, it sets the bar pretty high. Because we love us. But we don't love others as much as we love us. It's painful. It's not fun. This isn't, this isn't a trip to a theme park. But we just can't be satisfied with general repentance, can we? That's why we confessed our faith together earlier. That we must not be satisfied with a general repentance, but we must confess of particular sins particularly. As we lay in, in bed at night and we do kind of a self-examination, a, a checkup, and again, Christ calls us to pray these things every day. So if you're thinking about what should I be thinking about at night, or in the morning, or both, you start thinking, okay, well how... How have I violated the fifth commandment today? In what ways have I, fallen, have I fallen short in living up to the standards of the sixth commandment? The seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, first, second, third, fourth. This is given as a means for us to reflect on our own struggles. And I think we'd all recognize that we struggle with particular sets and categories of sins more than others. Here, we're given um, the cliff notes to Corinth's besetting sins. If you look back in chapter 12, verses 20 to 21, you're kind of given uh, kind of a, uh, an updated roster of uh, uh, Corinth's performance as it regards the path of holiness. You look at verse 20 of chapter 12. Here's a church that is beset with quarreling, jealousy, anger, 
hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Verse 21, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality. Who would want to be a part of that church? And yet that's the problem that faces every church. That every church faces, isn't it? Think of, think of how messed up Corinth is as a congregation, and yet Paul can say with full confidence to the saints, to those who are holy in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you doing? You have been set apart and sanctified by the Spirit. Now live like it. Here is Corinth, who in short is struggling with factionalism and fornication. The problem of social cliques and sexual sins, that is the besetting sins of of that particular congregation of Corinth. You read other letters and you'll find different sets of besetting sins for each congregation. As, As each church takes on its own unique character in many ways, but we're all sinners, that sin is going to manifest itself differently. But it all still requires the same thing, and that is repentance. And so Paul here is telling the church of Corinth, examine yourselves. I've written several letters to you now about these matters. It's time to put these sins behind you. The final exam is approaching, as it were. I do not want you to fail. I hope that you come to realize that we have not failed you. Though you have accused us of being terrible teachers, Paul is modeling what it looks like to bear patiently with them. Paul has said over and over and again in this letter, I do not want to be the disciplinarian. He finds it to be a humiliating venture. Paul says, I want you to do what's right. That's my desire. My goal, the goal of discipline is your restoration. That is the very thing that we're seeking. But to say that our goal is your restoration presumes that there is still something that needs to be restored. There is still something that needs to be repented of. Paul, in essence, saying, I'm your biggest supporter. I want you to pass the test. I'm rooting for you, but if you fail, I have to do what is right. Please examine yourself. Make amends before it is too late. Before Christ comes in judgment. As he comes to Corinth through the ministry of Paul. Now is the time for self-reflection, for self-examination. To repent of particular sins particularly. Paul says, my, my job is not to tear you down. My job is to, my goal, my desire, my, the calling that I have is to, is to build you up. But if this church is built on an, on an unsteady foundation, then we've got to level the playing field and start over again. Amend your ways before it is too late. We cannot sweep sin under the rug. Sin must be dealt with either in repentance or in judgment. Through discipline or through forgiveness. Though uh, th- those in leadership ought to exercise great patience in working towards uh, those ends, to, and that's part of the pa- uh, um, uh, part of the goal of shepherding. It's the part of the goal of past- pastoring. Is to help you grow in Christ. My, my job and, and Steve and Jones's job are as elders, as under-shepherds of Christ's flock to see you grow in godliness. And that requires great patience on, on our part in, in making sure that, you, uh, that we deal with you slowly, uh, individually, 
and growing. Of course, it requires great patience on your part as you put up with our shenanigans as well. But you see, Paul is talking about, the, the, he's modeling the great patience and care that he's exercising towards a really um, rambunctious congregation. Giving them time to repent. But Paul says, I can't pretend that it doesn't need to be addressed. Repentance must take place or I will have to act accordingly. Right, politicians may cover up dirty secrets, but Christians cannot. We're called to live in light of God's holiness. So once again, Paul lays down a pattern for the apostolic church. I think significantly there are two takeaways that we have for us. The first is this, the need for self-examination. As Paul says here, in light of everything that he's written in this whole letter, examine yourselves. Ask yourselves, are you in the faith? Yes, or no? Does your life evidence a true and lively faith? Do we recognize our own sins, right? First John says, if we say we don't have any sin, then you're a liar. Plain and simple. Bible recognizes the reality that even for believers, we are all still sinners. The question is, when we see our sin, what do we do with it? Do we excuse them away? Do we try to cover them up? Or do we confess and turn from them? That is the sign of spiritual maturity. That is the sign of a lively faith. How quickly do we repent? How quickly do, when we see how we messed up, how quickly do we say, I was wrong, please forgive me? If we sin against others, do we seek to make amends for the ways in which we have harmed them, or do we just say, it's not that big a deal, they'll get over it? Right, this isn't just an annual doctor's exam. This is a self-examination that we have to have with ourselves every day of our lives. It's actually required to come to the Lord's table. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, a person must examine himself before he partakes. One thing you might ask to the life of the church is why don't we have, you know, once kids are baptized, if they're baptized as infants, why can't they partake of the Lord's Supper right away? Well, Paul gives the reason. Baptism is not enough. You have to be able to examine yourself. That's why a profession of faith is required to come to the Lord's table. That you are able to examine your own heart, that you have the maturity to say, this is what sin is, and these are the sins that I struggle with. This is how I need to grow in the faith. This is why we have the reading of the law and the confession of sin every week. It's given to train us how to read our Bibles. I hope you don't gloss over and, and use the time when we have the reading of the law or, or the time for prayer to just kind of zone out and start thinking about what you're having for lunch. This is a time to train us to read our Bibles, to, to read the, the, this particular passage as the passage changes every week and say, okay, what does God require of me from this passage? And how should I confess my sin in light of God's Word? And then, of course, to be reminded of the great and abundant mercy that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone who repents and turns from their sin. Examine yourselves. Do I see Christ being formed in me? Don't you know that Christ lives in you, Paul asks? Am I growing to look more and more like my Savior? Am I growing in the things He has called me to believe? Am I growing in the things He has called me to do? Examine yourselves. The second takeaway from this 
particular passage regards the matters of church discipline. And it's a, a sobering reminder that God wants us to grow more than many times we want to grow. We say we want to grow in the faith so long as it doesn't cost us much. The Lord says, I've called you my child. There are many benefits that come from that, but one of those benefits is discipline. Because my goal is to see you look like my beloved son. And I want to see Christ formed in you more than you do. And so there are times when the Lord has to discipline each and every one of us. The harder we buck against God's gracious proddings, just like any parent, the harder he begins to discipline us. The more hard-hearted we are, the more he begins to prod and to need to, uh, to, to, to soften us, to, to make us like, like Play-Doh so he can fashion us uh, like uh, the potter's vessel. And this passage reminds us the Lord has not simply left discipline to, to the area of his general providence, but he's actually communicated and entrusted this task to the leadership of the church. To remind us that sin is serious, but also to remind us that the goal of discipline is, if at all possible, restoration, not exasperation. Not for me to kind of look out in the crowd and say, okay, who can I discipline this week? But rather the goal is, I want to see every person in here make it to heaven. And just as important, I want to see every person in here look like Christ on the way to heaven. But if we refuse to amend our ways, Paul's very clear. This applies to all of us. Judgment awaits. So let us examine ourselves then that we might be found faithful at our Lord's appearing. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use this word to prick our consciences, uh, to uh, arouse us from the slumber of our failed self-examination, and that we would give due diligence uh, to examining our own hearts to ensure, to see whether we are in the faith. We need your grace. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together now as we sing our hymn of response number 239, Who is this so we can help us?